the Los Angeles Lakers. Not what you were expecting me to lead off with on a podcast about storytelling, right? On today's show, I will be reviewing season one of Winning Time on HBO, a show that follows the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s. And then I'll be digging deeper into season one of Tokyo Vice. My Winning Time review will be spoiler free, but then when I get into Tokyo Vice, I will do a review of that as well that will be spoiler free, but then I'll give you a spoiler warning and get into some more spoilers as I talk about season one as a whole and some of the things that I really enjoyed. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers, which by the way, Death of a Bounty Hunter is now the full cast audiobook version, 14 different characters voiced by 11 different voice performers. That is now on audiobooks.com. You can go buy that right now on audiobooks.com. I highly recommend it to you. And even if you've read the, you know, the novel version of it, I highly recommend you pick up the audiobook because it's a completely different experience and you know, we really wrote it to be a full cast audiobook. So you get the full experience if you get that book. Audiobooks.com now has it. But let's talk about two of the best shows to come out in 2022, Winning Time and Tokyo Vice. So first up, Winning Time. It's a show about the legacy of the Los Angeles Lakers during the 1980s. Pretty interesting topic because a lot of those people are still alive. Um, and... You know, it harkens really back to my childhood. So what is it about? It is about basically uh, when Jerry Buss purchased the Lakers, 1979, 1980, and then when Magic Johnson joined the Lakers right out of right out of college, uh, the show follows that. The show follows their original season, and then hopefully we'll get some more future seasons. I've, they have already announced a season two, so apparently it was really popular. Um, and you might, you might be hearing my dog in the background. He seems to be really excited about the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, that's what the show is about. It's covering all of the complexity of the first season that Magic Johnson was on the Lakers. I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more what that looks like. But it's a pretty compelling show. And um, it's done in a very interesting way. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, really fun fact about this show. Um I've worked with one of the performers in this show. Uh, Kirk Beauville is a friend of mine on Facebook, but also somebody that I've worked a couple times with on uh, short films. I produced and helped kind of write uh, two short films, which Kirk Beauville was in. Um, I think all of us would probably agree that one of those films is not very good. The other one is fun, but probably not great either. We, they were very low budget productions, they were, but they were really fun. One of them was called Dr. Gold's Dream Drink. And that one was kind of a Goonies kind of an episode where he plays a mad scientist who um, these kids are trying to <laughs> trying to get back at. That was really fun to film. And that was I was a full co-producer on that, full co-writer on that. The other film that I was kind of hanging around with the production of was um, produced by a friend of mine uh, named Chris. Chris is super talented guy. Um, but we were under the gun on this and Chris had a very distinct vision for it. And both Marianne Holland, who's on our board of directors here at the Reclamation Society, and Kirk Beauville were in it. They played father and daughter. And it was kind of Chris's vision. I wasn't too involved in that. I was initially involved in some of the writing. And then I'm like, Chris, I, I don't know how to write this. This is all you. So he took it on all himself. Um, but it was a pleasure to work with Kirk because Kirk is a guy who spent a lot of his career in sales and marketing and then basically decided to go into acting. He and his wife are now full-time actors. Uh, they've done a ton of cool projects, and he got connected with Adam McKay, who's the 
Uh, I don't know if he's produced this show, but I know he he's involved in directing the show this this winning time. And Kirk Beauville um, has uh, a small role in season one and will probably have an extended role in the future. But he plays Donald Sterling, who, if you remember, is a super controversial figure in the basketball world. So if you're not a basketball fan, just know that Donald Sterling um, it was was considered a now I don't know all of the details of this, but he was considered a very controversial figure. Um, he was probably very racist. If not very racist, then he definitely was experiencing some uh, mental lapses. Maybe he was becoming senile or something along those lines and then got even worse near the end of his life. So I don't know that story well enough, but you can look up reports on Donald Sterling. He was the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers uh, before the current owner came in. And uh, but anyways, because Kirk Beauville plays him in this series, which is really, really fun. And I have a personal connection to Kirk. So that was really fun for me too. Kirk also, by the way, was in uh, the movie Vice, um, which was a story about Donald, um, not Donald Rumsfeld. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was in it, uh, but Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. He was also in that. I believe he played Henry Kissinger, but I could be wrong about that. Um, fantastic actor super cool guy so kirk, kirk Boville. if you haven't if you don't know him go look him up he's awesome and then i just want to talk a little bit about adam mckay style i mentioned adam mckay earlier so adam mckay is sort of shepherding this particular show and you can imagine that a show about the los angeles lakers is going to be pretty complex a lot of people remember this era <laughs> right like this is not like all that long ago we're talking about what is it now 30 years ago that these things oh maybe 40 years ago 40 years ago that these things were coming out um i was born in the early 80s so i was not quite around to see this in person because i would have been too young but saw some of it later in the 80s right as i was a kid watching basketball on tv and things so it is really fun to revisit this era it was a very unique era i think in terms of los angeles and what was going on in Los Angeles at the time. It's a very different era than what we find ourselves in in 2022 um, to a large degree. This was an era where a lot of people were moving to California because California was a cool place to be. This is Hollywood in the 1980s really took off. You can remember some of the biggest, we just talked about recently, I talked with uh, my buddy, Mike Biondo. We talked about the Blues Brothers on this show. If you go back a couple episodes, you can find that. And that would that's those kinds of movies started this huge Hollywood um, expansion, if you will. Like things got really like how often do you hear about a movie from the 70s that isn't Star Wars, right? It's not very often, but we got, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark in the early 80s, all of the Star Wars films in the 80s. Hollywood just exploded from a blockbuster perspective, particularly in the 80s. And a lot of that was seen so. California was seen through the lens of Hollywood, but also seen through the lens of sports. And growing up in that kind of era, um, I can remember it, it seeming like Hollywood was like the place to be, right? Now, there was a lot of things that came along with that that were pretty interesting. And Adam McKay here with Winning Time showcases a lot of that because he showcases like this is what kind of I don't know about if I would say the height, but it was definitely a popular era for like Playboy magazine and uh you know, this is still an era where we'd move past the 50s and 60s. So there were more females in the workforce, but sexual harassment was like a really big deal and was still very active in, in some of these circles. And, and the show so showcases some of that, right? For example, Jerry Buss, who purchases the Lakers early on in this show, um, 
you know, he was a guy that liked to run in these circles. He was a guy who liked to, he even has a forum club at the, so the, the Lakers used to play at the forum, um, which eventually was a church at one point in time, by the way. But the, but at the forum, he had a forum club and, you know, there was a lot of women and booze and probably drugs there. It's, some of that is showcased a little bit in the show itself. Um, so this was a pretty interesting time. People were very much looking for the, the next biggest thing and they were they wanted to associate themselves with some of these cool factors whether it was hollywood or whether it was basketball or whatever in fact a lot of the stars in this um, show a lot of the basketball players you can hear them talking about hollywood and even in one of the earlier shows magic johnson sort of attends a, a premiere so there was a lot going on in the 80s and having grown up as a kid of the 80s this show this show kind of takes us back into that into that era and showcases some of the things that were really cool about that era, but also some of the things that were pretty challenging about that era as well. I do want to mention Adam McKay's style. Adam McKay has done Vice. He did uh, Don't Look Up, which is on Netflix right now, was nominated for an Oscar. He did The Big Short, which had a bunch of Oscar performances in it, I believe, and probably was nominated for an Oscar itself in some way, shape, or form. Adam McKay's style is very distinctive. You could compare Adam McKay's style to like what the office would look like if it was if it was uh not intended to be funny but more intended to be more dramatic he will ha he will break the fourth wall occasionally he does a lot of close-ups it's very documentary style in this particular show he does something really fascinating which is he films it as if it was filmed on cameras that were available in the 1980s right so you get now very technical people will know what that means. <laughs> I don't because I'm assuming it's like 35 millimeter film or something like that. Uh, but I don't know the technical term. Um, I'm a writer and a producer. I don't get into the te technical parts of, of film production. But uh, he does a fantastic job of capturing all of those things in a style that is super compelling to watch on TV. And I highly recommend just even looking at the style that he presents to us in the 1980s. And the way he... I mean... The way he captures all of these characters makes them very realistic as to what I remember as a kid. Now, it's probably our memories as they as we wanted them to be as opposed to the memories about how things actually were. But he's not afraid to touch the nitty gritty of these things either, which brings me to the performances. The performances are fantastic throughout the entire season. I mean... Adam McKay has always had performers who have done a fantastic job in every single one of the movies that he's done. I think you would easily say that the performances were great. The Big Short and Vice, those performances are stellar performances by just about everyone involved in those films. Um, Don't Look Up is a slightly different take because it's a little bit more comedic than I think it's intended to be a little bit more comedic than some of his previous stuff. All of his stuff includes comedy, but I think Don't Look Up is supposed to be like even a little bit more comedy. Um, so the performances may not be as totally dramatic and maybe a little bit more over the top in that one. So maybe not to my preference, but I'm, a bunch of people love that movie and, you know, got an Oscar nomination. So um, obviously it's a big deal. But here in this show, the performances are off the charts. I mean, these are these are real characters right uh these are uh, i should say real people that are showcased as characters and i don't think the show is going for just like in the past with his other movies the show is not going for a historical accuracy of the people involved what he's going for from a storytelling perspective this is amazing 
This is why he's so good and why so many people like him. What he's looking for is he's looking for what was the drama in these people's lives, right? And then he gives every character a reason to be dramatized in a way that goes along with what we would expect their character to be facing. So let me give you a couple of examples. Jerry Buss is a guy who was not involved in basketball, sort of a self-made millionaire, as the show points out. Guy who loves his mom, guy who loves women, very big womanizer, um, guy who loves his family too. Uh, so what is that guy's thing that he's struggling with? Well, he's struggling with the fact that he's not super respected by the other basketball owners, but he's a very competitive guy. He's a very friendly guy. And so when people get after him and like don't act like his friend very much, that hurts him. And so then he has to fight back and he has to compete back. When things happen in his family that are difficult, he has to kind of struggle through that because he's a guy who doesn't want to think about bad things. He's a guy who just wants to focus on the goals he has. That's pretty compelling. His daughter, Jeannie Buss, who is now the current um, owner of the Lakers since Dr. Buss has, he was Dr. Jerry Buss. I think he was an honorary doctorate, but he's since passed. But um, his daughter now owns the, owns the team and she's in this show. What does she struggle with? Well, she struggles with the fact that her dad's a womanizer and has that 80s mindset of where women belong in the workplace and where they don't belong in the workplace. And she's actually one of the best employees that he has in some in some regards. So um, and then and then Magic Johnson, what is what are what's he going through? Well, he's got there's another there's another player, Larry Bird, who also shows up as a rookie in this season, in the 1980 season. And Larry Bird is getting a lot of the accolades. Why? Largely because Larry Bird is white, right? Fascinating place to put Magic Johnson. So it's not that it's not that these are going to be like a true life story of like every single event that took place in real life also takes place in the show in the exact way it did in real life. It's more so saying these are some of the things that these people at this time were likely struggling with. And then we will dramatize those things to make it really compelling on TV. So, of course, there's creative license with that, right? This is not a depiction of, this is not a biography of any of these characters. This is a dramatization of the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s and all of the characters that played a role in that. And this show, it's, I think it captures it all pretty well. And it is a fascinating season of the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm not going to spoil anything, but there are some big twists and turns here. And I mean, going back to the performances, I mean, everybody across the board does such a good job here. You get lost. It's almost like you're just watching. I mean, the guy who plays Magic Johnson, I, I don't know his name. This is the, I believe, one of the first roles that he's done is phenomenal. Also, fun fact, I watched the behind the scenes features. The guy is not very tall. So they do a lot of, uh, I mean, this is like like they take Lord of the Rings type forced perspective and they put people in, in ways that they look really a lot taller than other people that they may not be actually in real life. So really, really well done. Going back in this time frame and seeing the 1980s represented is really, really fun. And this is not really a show about basketball. So a lot of you guys, you know, you listen to this show, you've never heard me talk about sports probably ever, right? And I used to be uh, a lot more into sports when I was younger. And then once I got into storytelling and once I got into writing books and, and, and making some films and things like that, 
I just haven't had the time to watch as many sports. But I used to like sports a lot when I was a kid. And I remember the they used to be called the Showtime Lakers, but that must be copywritten somewhere because the show's called Winning Time, not Showtime. So it, it must have something to do with copyright or something. Um, but this is a very compelling show. Just some storytelling things that it does that I find really fascinating. I mentioned some of these already, but the characters all have goals and objectives and it's difficult for them to achieve them. And there's all these twists and turns along the way and they have to make commitments in order to achieve those goals and objectives. And when, when two people's goals collide with one another, it creates all of this tension, which is really, really good. Very compelling. They're all the characters are really fleshed out really, really well. I mean, these feel like real people on screen. And I think that the show, I've mentioned this already because of the dramatization aspect of the show, but this show is really more true to how people felt about the Lakers and about Los Angeles in the 1980s, maybe more than it is about the reality of the situation, right? And I don't think the show is trying to be real. It's trying to showcase this is how we all felt about the <laughs> this era, especially in Los Angeles, right? And a lot of the people involved in the show actually lived in LA during this era. So they, they have a context by which they can view this, this framework. And um, I found the show very fun. I found it. It's a, I mean, it's certainly adults to so just know going in, like probably not as probably not a show you want to watch with your kids. It's not enough about basketball. It's more about the lives of everybody involved. But I would say that it's easily one of the best shows in 2022 thus far, particularly on HBO Max. So it is it is worth a watch. If you if you were into the early 80s or into the Lakers at all or wondered about what was happening in that decade, then check it out. Probably not a lot of people who watch my show or listen to my show. Probably not made for you. <laughs> but but just know that uh, I took a chance on it because, again, a kid of the 80s in Los Angeles, um, I really wanted to listen to it, and I, I thought it was really fun. So definitely check that out. In the meantime, let's switch uh, over to Tokyo Vice, another show on HBO Max, probably one of my favorite shows of the year. Now, Winning Time has already been greenlit for a season two, but HBO, you've got to greenlight season two of Tokyo Vice. W what are you doing? What are you doing? What? Why have we not announced the season two of Tokyo Vice? I mean, I know that there were some things going on with um, Ansel Elgort off camera that he maybe they're dealing with that maybe that's one of the reasons this hasn't been greenlit but i really hope that's sorted out i hope it's i hope it's not a serious problem i nope i hope he's not in serious trouble there were some allegations against him i don't even know the details of those allegations by the way i don't get into those things as much as i get into the stories you guys know that from listening to the show <laughs> i'd rather i'd much rather talk about the shows than talk about the lives of the people who make the shows uh but this is one of my favorite shows of 2022 thus far. Yes, it is right up my alley because it is very much Detective Noir. I have a whole video about how it is Detective Noir that you can check out on this channel. Um, and if you're into Detective Noir at all, I think you'll like that video. But we need season two here. I mean, season one was fantastic. The way it is exposing us to Japanese culture and giving the Western world some better examples of what that looks like. And the way that they're going about it is fantastic. But let me describe what it is. Maybe you're sitting here going like, what in the world is Tokyo Vice? In fact, two of the people that have podcasted with me on this channel about Tokyo Vice really uh, weren't even aware of it. They both told me that I wasn't really aware of it until you said, do you want to podcast about it? So I had seen a, an advertisement for it. 
And this is kind of my jam, right? Like I like this kind of detective. I'm not as much into the um, reality crime shows, uh, but I really am into Detective Noir. Always have been into Detective Noir. Love uh, reading Detective Noir books as well. Um, Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, those those characters are, are fantastic to me, especially the, when they take they take place in uh, Los Angeles. In fact, some of those books, if you go back, especially the Philip Marlowe books, these are written in like the 1930s. And so if, if you know L.A. at all, you know, there's like downtown L.A. and then there's urban sprawl and then just urban sprawl goes out for miles and miles and miles. And, you know, I grew up in L.A., as I just talked about uh, when we were talking about winning time and my whole life was spent with LA being crazy packed, you know, like you could drive from LA to Pasadena and it was just nothing but freeway and, and, and infrastructure. Um, but you'll read these old Philip Marlowe stories. He's the detective. Um, Raymond Chandler is the writer of, of, and I love the Raymond Chandler's works. You can, you can watch those shows and, or I'm sorry, you could read those books these are written in like the 1930s, 1940s, in that kind of era, time frame. And he'll describe driving from downtown Los Angeles and like entering the the countryside <laughs> on his way to Pasadena. And it's like, oh yeah, I had to drive for miles and miles through orange groves, which were you know prevalent in in that era. And it's like it's like he's going on a trip to Pasadena. <laughs> it's like, and that is so weird for someone who grew up in Los Angeles in the '80s because it's the infrastructure along there. Like there was no, you're not driving to the country. You're just driving to another suburb of Los Angeles is what it feels like. Um, but I love that kind of stuff. I love you know hearkening back to that era. Now this is not that kind of show because this takes place in in the year 2000. Um, and Jake Adelstein. Um, so let me just tell you what this show is about. What is this show? What is Tokyo Vice? Well, Tokyo Vice is essentially a detective noir show about a character who is from Missouri, who travels out to Japan after graduating, is teaching English, and then gets a job as the first Western or foreign reporter who works the crime beat for a major newspaper in Japan. So this is like pretty wild like this has never happened before and in the early 2000s there's a guy who who does that his name is jake adelstein and jake uh wrote a memoir it's based on jake's memoir of his time in japan so it's based on a true story so both winning time which i talked about earlier and tokyo vice are based on real life uh but obviously dramatized so that's what the show is based on is the, the memoir of the same name. Now, I talked to Dale Wentland about episodes two and three of Tokyo Vice. You can go back and listen to that podcast um, in the podcast feed or on YouTube. You can find the video on that. And Dale Wentland has actually gone and he really enjoyed the show too. Big um, fan of Japanese culture and, and a student of Japanese culture in a lot of ways. He went and bought the memoir. So we're going to have to hear back from Dale about how the show compares to the memoir that would be really fascinating he did tell me that chapter one feels just like basically like chapter one of the books feels like episode one of the show so that's pretty cool to hear so maybe we'll get an update from dale uh later on but that so that's cool right like it's it's based on a true story it is trying to showcase what it's like to be in tokyo in the early 2000s late 90s early 2000s um and it is essentially about crime reporting in Tokyo in that era meaning that the yakuza which are essentially a lot of people tend to compare the yakuza to the mafia but i did watch a featurette 
like HBO Max has this cool thing where you can go in and select like to watch the featurettes about making some of the the show. And the featurette talked about how, you know, the way that we view the mafia in the US is not really the same way that the Japanese view the Yakuza. There are some similarities maybe, but but the Yakuza are uh, an organized crime syndicate with different families or clans or whatever you want to call them. Uh, it's not my technical term. It's just me saying what it kind of feels like to me. And this show is about Jake Adelstein in Japan navigating crime reporting. And he has a very Western view of crime reporting, which is not necessarily shared in the Japanese population. And it is his goal to sort of unearth some of the stories that he feels the Japanese people should know about that they don't know about because of the way reporting is done. Reporting basically being you report what the police tell you is true. But the police don't necessarily always tell you what is true. Um, Dale says, can't wait to talk Tokyo Vice with you some more in the comments. Thanks, Dale. That would be really, really fun. Um, we should have a show comparing the memoir. I can just ask you questions. You can just tell me. <laughs> That'd be really fun. Um, and by the way, I have finished season one uh, at, by this time. So I've already finished season one. And this, and, and when I get into spoilers, I'll be talking about all of season one, but I'll let you know in advance before I get to the spoilers. Um, and there's the show includes like Jake develops friendships with Yakuza members. Jake develops um, relationships with other Westerners who are who are there living in Tokyo. He develops relationships with detectives, both detectives that are on the side of good and maybe some detectives that are a little bit shady in the way that they operate. Right. So it's this complex uh, weave interweaving of characters that is that is really, really fun. At least it was for me. Um, how is the show different from other shows? The show focuses in, it gives you um, a lot of immersion, right? It immerses you in the Japanese culture. If you're not a person who likes to read subtitles, then guess what? You're not going to be able to watch this show because this show, a lot of the dialogue is actually done in Japanese. In fact, Ansel Elgort learned Japanese to be able to film this show, which is crazy. Like if you say like, hey, I will hire you, but you have to learn Japanese in the next, you know, three, four or five months. Um, and from... A westerner's perspective he does an excellent job with it right like he just he speaks it really well from what i can tell and it's really really compelling uh largely a japanese cast by the way um which means that they'd be able to tell you if he's doing a bad job <laughs> um and so if you don't like subtitles you might not like this but it is sort of like taking uh the detective noir with with raymond chandler philip marlowe and instead of setting that in the 1930s in Los Angeles, you set it in the late 90s, early 2000s, and in Tokyo. So what does that mean? It ne means it needs to give you a feel for the city at that time, which it does really well. It needs to give you a feel for the culture at that time and some of the other subcultures that exist, which it does really well. And then it needs to give you the vice part. What are people's vices? What kind of trouble do they get themselves into? What happens when when things go wrong and they have to make even worse choices? This show will cover all of those things, including some of the things that Jake does um, to get a story and whether or not that that's, that's okay to do. So I uh, cannot recommend this show highly enough. If you don't like detective noir or crime, drama then probably don't watch it if you don't want to read subtitles then don't watch it but otherwise 
you should go watch this show. It is another adult show. It's on HBO. Like every every show on HBO, if I'm ever talking about a show on HBO, just almost always is going to have some adult material in it. There are some shows more for kids these days on HBO Max, but um, I will let you know one way or the other. This one's adult as well. But this is my spoiler warning because I'm going to get into a little bit deeper discussion around Tokyo Vice and... Um, I want to make sure that I don't spoil it for you. So if you have not seen Tokyo Vice yet, go ahead and drop off now because I am going to get into spoilers. So there's your warning. Turn it off. Um, here's why we need a season two. The opening scene, which I went back and just watched right before recording this. The opening scene of Tokyo Vice happens in the future. Beyond, beyond... <laughs> what we get at the end of season one, meaning that we actually have not gotten to the point at which the show started. And this is a storytelling technique that is used from time to time. Uh, it's being used uh, very effectively, I might add. Uh, in fact, I think it's used slightly more effectively in Better Call Saul. It was been being used in Better Call Saul. So what is that technique? It is a technique wherein you show something that is happening in the future. So in Better Call Saul, it's the same thing. The black and white scenes, if you're watching that show, I won't spoil that show. But if you're watching that show, the black and white scenes are taking place in what we'd call the present. And then we see we go backwards in time. And then the, the full color scenes, which is where most of the show takes place. Those are what's happening now. And the reason why it's an effective technique is because, and it's really effective in Better Call Saul, because it's very mysterious. They don't give you a lot of hints about what is going on. But you but you know that there's a lot of tension, right? So that, that sets up a suspense. Like, how do we get there? And like, what in the world is going on? In Tokyo Vice, it's not quite the same, because you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> they give you a whole scene plays out, and this is a spoiler, so I'm going to spoil it. The whole opening scene is basically... Jake meeting with one of the Yakuza gangs, the Tazawa run gang. And they're basically wondering or asking each other, how are we going to deal with this situation? Because Jake, you're going to run a story. So they just give us a hint that Jake is a reporter, a crime reporter. You're going to run a story that's very damaging to us. So either run the story and face the consequences, the consequences, which probably are really bad, or don't run the story and you can be friends with us, right? And that's how that show sets out, sets off. So then the, the question is, we go back two years and it says, now moving forward, now we're going to explain how Jake got into this situation where he is with a detective meeting with a Yakuza crime boss and being threatened. So how did Jake get there? Well, we're going to rewind. Like I said, the end of season one doesn't get us to that back to that place. <laughs> There's still more story to be told which is why we need a season two. We can't, we can't leave it here. This is horrible. We already know what's going to happen in the future and we, we we're not there yet. So we need a season two HBO. Um, but let me talk about the ending because um, you've heard me talk about some of the other episodes. If you've listened to this podcast, if you haven't listened to the podcast, you can always go back, listen to me talking with Mike Gordon, listen to me talking with Dale um, or listen to me just talking about it on my own, which I've done a couple times too. But anyways, let's talk about the crazy ending and why we need a season two, because this ending is wild. So in classic Detective Noir style, the good guy, in this case, there's a detective named Katagiri who's played by Kent Watanabe, which you know if you, um, you know if you uh, have been watching the show. Fantastic actor, by the way. 
probably up there with Denzel Washington, uh, that caliber of actor, right? Ken Watanabe, fantastic. He's been in a bunch of movies uh, that you've seen before. And in in classic detective noir fashion, Ken, Ken's character, Katagiri, Detective Katagiri, has sort of been the I do things maybe not by the book, because that would be the wrong word, because the Japanese culture has a certain way of doing things, and he kind of deviates from that a little bit. But people respect him in the Japanese culture. So he's not doing things that are um, like Jake, who's like, I'm just going to break the rules, which sounds very American. Sounds like a very Western thing to do. Um, as opposed to that, uh, Detective Katagiri is more so he shows respect, but he's also going after the truth. And so if you were to look at what character is the embodiment of how we would how we should be viewing the show it's probably detective category he has a family they're really great he's a he's a good guy he doesn't just fall in line with any of the corruption of the police department or he doesn't fall in line with you know like not asking for the deeper deeper perspective he's kind of our guy to be like i like this guy like i hope his his goals and objectives are met well in classic detective noir fashion the head of the Tazawa crime syndicate, a Yakuza member, threatens to kill Katagiri's family if he keeps pursuing taking down Tazawa's empire. So in the show, you'll, you'll remember this, Tazawa is going after more territory, partially because the guy who runs that group, that the Tazawa uh, is his name, he is facing some severe health problems. They never really tell us what it is, but it seems like it's probably cancer. And because it's near the end of his life, he's basically trying to take over as much territory as possible, probably to leave a legacy, right? Um, and as he's doing that, Katagiri is trying to bring him down because Katagiri is trying to keep the peace more than anything else. And if he has these giant Yakuza battles in Tokyo, a lot of civilians are going to get into trouble. So this is basically Katagiri. Um, Tozawa saying to Katagiri, you're going to stop doing what you're doing or else I'm going to kill your family, right? So even when even when Detective Noir has a more upstanding or respectful or holier character like Detective Katagiri, they almost always take it, they take it far enough to where something really threatens them. And now in the show, in this final episode of the show, that's where we get with Tazawa and Katagiri. Fantastic stuff. Also in this episode, in this last episode in the finale, uh, Sato, or Sato, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, it, one of my favorite characters in, in the series, is he's a character who is very, uh, what we, we call conflicted to be in the Yakuza, but realizing what it means to be in the Yakuza, realizing what it means to be a person who's respected. And having gone from a person who's maybe a little bit more empathetic to now kind of shifting gears and realizing I got to have a little bit less empathy and I got to be a little bit tougher or else I won't survive in this world. That character is fantastic. He falls in love with another one of the characters who's from the West. So that sets up some tension as well. And at the end of the show, not expected by me, he gets stabbed by one of the Chihara. He's part of the Chihara gang. He gets stabbed by one of those guys. Uh, one of the lower level gang members stabs him. We don't know whether or not he dies. I have a feeling he does not die. But again, this is based off a memoir. 
So if this character is real from the memoir, which I don't know, um, then it's unlikely that this character would die unless he really did die in real life, which is very possible. But I'm really curious to hear what happens to that character. Really, really, really enjoyed that character. That's That character is one of those characters who's trying to better himself in life, but finds himself conflicted. So again, from a storytelling perspective, Detective Noir does this pretty well. Uh, there are some cases where Detective Noir does not do this well. In fact, let me get into that in a second, because I think I'm going to complain about another show. Um, but in this show, it's done really well, is that he feels like he wants to be respected, Sato. He feels like he wants to be respected, but in order to get respect, he has to have this clash of, of empathy versus being a harder, more intense person. And he has to choose one of those routes. Um, so he's a fantastic character. So one of the things I love about um, Detective Noir is that there are all of these little choices that add up to bigger and bigger things. There is no show that does this better than Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad has little minor choices in every single episode made by the lead character to take him down a path that is detrimental to him and to society. That's why it's called Breaking Bad. Now, there are two ways to to there are two ways that drama can unfold in a story. And one way I think is a way to hack the brain and one way is to give the brain things to chew on that is more powerful in the long run. So let me let me compare and contrast. I've seen the first two seasons of Ozark. Ozark, people love Ozark. People love Ozark. In fact, a bunch of you listening to this will have watched Ozark. And as soon as I bring up Ozark, you're going to be like, what do you mean? Ozark is amazing. How could you tell me it's... Let me tell you why I couldn't get into Ozark. The way Breaking Bad does conflict is how conflict unfolds in real life. What do I mean by that? People don't usually... It's almost entirely rare it almost never happens for people to go zero to 100 in terms of conflict you don't hear about like you know local upstanding pastor you know suddenly kills friend one day right you don't that doesn't that doesn't happen what does happen local pastor gets involved in a relationship at his local church that he shouldn't be involved in then all of a sudden someone's going to unearth that. Some people find out about it. That makes it makes his life harder. Some people start to leave the church. He feels like he has to deal with this. All of a sudden, you know, the person's husband uh, confronts him. This is a total fictional story. I'm just making this up. Uh, and then all of a sudden he feels like he has to go to, he's really angry, upset one day and feels like he has to go murder the person. In other words, there are minor little things that happen in our lives that take us towards bettering ourselves or towards making our lives worse. But those things are pretty minor. If you watch Breaking Bad, little tiny things happen to get us to those places, to get the characters to those places. An alternate route is to do what Ozark does. What does Ozark do? Well, Ozark does something that I call hacking the brain. How do you hack the brain as a storyteller or a writer? Well, 
the brain is wired to pay attention to conflict and to be drawn into conflict and to think, I can't believe this conflict is happening. We're wrapped. Our attention is wrapped, right, to shows, movies, whatever, where conflict is unfolding. It's why This is why it's, it's impossible to not watch a train crash or a car crash. Like This is why people say, I can't help but watch this. Because your brain is trying to, ultimately your brain is trying to understand the world and how the world works. And ultimately conflict makes the brain say, I should pay attention. Because what if I was in a similar situation at some point down the line or down the road, wouldn't I want to know how to deal with this? And so the brain wants to engage and, 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 and watch conflict unfold. So one way to hack the brain as a storyteller this is what I believe Ozark does, which a lot of people love. I'm not complaining about Ozark. I'm not saying you shouldn't like it. I'm just saying from my sensibilities, I don't like it as much. Is that Ozark ramps the conflict up to, from zero to 100 in a brief amount of time. So what does that do? What does that do? It gives you an emotional response faster. It makes your brain pay attention more. It is like a car crash. I can't take my eyes off this. Um, but it also, in my mind, puts people in situations where it is unlikely that they would end up. And that happens in Ozark all the time. It's kind of like, we're going to start this scene out and everybody's kind of okay. And then we're going to introduce two or three things in this scene that make it crazy bonkers. Nobody knows what's going on. It's out, it's out of control. And that's what I think Ozark does. In other words, in other words, whereas... Let's just compare a couple scenes. I should actually do this. I should make a video of this. But Breaking Bad might have a scene where I'll give you a good, really good example. There is a scene in Breaking Bad where Jesse Pinkman, who's partnering with Walter White to produce meth and sell meth. Jesse Pinkman has gotten involved with a girl who's Jesse Pinkman's girlfriend. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler. So if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, maybe you... You know, fast forward a little bit here. Um, and Walter White is growing increasingly uncomfortable with Jesse Pinkman's relationship with this girl because he knows that it's driving Jesse to make choices that Walter White doesn't want to make. They're not advantageous choices for Walter White. So over the course of, a, of several episodes, if not an, almost an entire season, Walter White is becoming increasingly uncomfortable with what Jesse Pinkman is doing with this relationship. And then there's one moment, and I won't tell you exactly what happens, but there's a moment where Walter realizes that if he doesn't take action, this character might die. He can save her life. He's been thinking about getting rid of her anyways. And now Walter White has to decide, do I save this person? Or do I not? Because if I don't save her, it's really good for me. But if I do save her, it could be really bad for me. That that unraveled over a long course of time. And that little tiny decision about, do I help this person? Or do I just let this happen as if I wasn't here? Is a very minor decision that has massive implications but if Ozark was going to do that, that same scene, Ozark would have said, I don't like your girlfriend. Oh, yeah? 
we'll deal with it because now we're going to get married. Oh, yeah? Well, I have a bazooka. <laughs> now, I'm over-exaggerating a little, little bit, but that's how Ozark would create a scene, right? Ozark just goes zero to 100. It's like, because then you're like, whoa, this person has a bazooka. That's that's, that's totally insane. And um, whereas Breaking Bad would go a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Now, uh, I brought this up on another show, but why is there a difference between the two? And why do I consider one hacking the other one? The best way I can describe it is the way that a singer described it, who was talking on a, an NPR show and talking about how she grew up thinking, I need to make it to the high note. And once I get to the high note, I can just impress everybody. And all of the older singers around her, the more seasoned, mature singers told her, no, 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 no. You've got to work on all the things that come before the high note. You can't just go straight to the high note. you got to work on, yes, you will impress people. Yes, you will get a dopamine response from them. Yes, they will love it. So this goes for writers too, I think. But if you work on building up all of the suspense and all of the little ways of singing that lead up to the high note, you do something very interesting to the human brain. So this is the same thing that I think Breaking Bad does that I think Ozark's basically going towards the high note and Breaking Bad is building up all these other moments before we get to the high note. And what is that? Well, science has explained it. And this 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 singer on NPR did a really good job explaining it. I wish I remembered her name because she, she said it brilliantly. She said, when you work on everything leading up to the high note, you start to build in the brain a delayed waiting for the high note and when you play with it and you add suspense and you go what happens next what happens here what's going to go on what you end up doing over the course of time is playing with the human brain in such a way that it keeps building up the emotional response in this case um, she was talking about dopamine there are probably other chemicals depending on what emotion you want the audience to release but imagine sitting in the theater and having in watching like a Hitchcock movie where there's all this suspense and it just keeps drawing out. Or, you know, uh, I did a series with my buddy Caleb Monroe, which I need who I need to have back on the show. We talked about great movie openings and how many of them draw out the conflict and have you experience suspense the entire time. What is that doing to your brain? It's causing your brain to build up the chemicals that it wants to release. And then when you get to the high note, boom. It releases those chemicals. You get to the high note and it releases the chemicals. And so you get a higher chemical release than you would have had otherwise if you didn't build up to it. And that's the beauty of a show like Breaking Bad. And I believe that's also true of Tokyo Vice. I believe that what Tokyo Vice does is build on itself one block, building block at a time. It doesn't skip to a lot of different, um, a lot of different things a lot of different points of conflict, it builds to those over the course of time. It takes its time to do it. So that's fantastic. Great storytelling in Tokyo Vice. Um, just with the crazy ending that I was talking about earlier, uh, even Tozawa, who looked ready to die earlier on in this season, seems like he's very much has a lot more energy and actually has a lot more, you know, possibly ways of... Uh, ways of coming back and feeling healthier so he seems pretty good to go by the end of the season which means that everything is up in the air at the end of season one 
but we know that this is this story is going to continue on because of the first scene that ever was in Tokyo Vice when you start watching it. It's a scene of the future. So again, HBO Max is has got to has got to has got to do something about this. Um, I talked about all of the storytelling insights already that I thought were really really good about this show. It just keeps building on its tension. It keeps there's a lot there there are a lot of twists and turns, but the, I I do really feel like those twists and turns are earned. Not as maybe not as maybe as much as a Better Call Saul or a Breaking Bad, which I believe are two of the best written shows in the history of television. But this is up there. This is up near uh, the writing and the way that the writing unfolds is up near that level. So highly recommend it. Here are some here are some of my favorite things about the show. Um, now, granted, you've probably already seen these things because you're watching a spoiler show, but you can let me know what your favorite moments of this show are. If you're not watching this, then here are some of my favorite moments that you can look forward to. One is the relationships. All the relationships are complex. Uh, Sato and Jake have a complex relationship. He's a Tazawa. He's a um, he's, sorry. He's a Chihara Yakuza gang member, and he's the guy that's like conflicted with with this gang lifestyle. And then there's Jake, who's you know trying to figure out how to move in these circles and be a crime reporter. Uh, Katagiri and Jake, you know, Katagiri is the exemplary member of the police department who we all would want to be a member of the police department. And his relationship with Jake is he's kind of trying to mentor Jake as his understanding of the Japanese culture. Fantastic relationship between them, almost like a father-son type of a mentor relationship. Um, Ishida and Jake, Ishida is the head of the Chihara, which Sato is part of, the crime faction. He may be one of my favorite characters because he's old school gangster. Where Tazawa is like new school kind of gangster. Um, Ishida is like almost as if you took a feudal Japanese samurai is what the guy feels like. Um, and he, he, I mean, the guy's voice is, is outstanding um, in the way he the way he delivers his lines and the way he does things. There's a moment in the show that you'll remember if you've seen it where... Um, where Sato and, and the guy who brought Sato into the gang um, have to deal with Ishida. And he just is very threatening. He can go, he can go from being like, oh, like he seems like a nice grandpa guy to being threatening and like that's <laughs> like really fast. Um, I like the relationship between Samantha and Sato. Um, there's also a relationship between Samantha and Jake. Samantha is from America as well from the states i haven't talked about this yet on the show but samantha has a really fascinating backstory because she was a missionary and as it turned out she kind of fell in love with japan and then she did some things in this case she stole money from the mormon church in order to stay in japan and that's sort of hanging over her head and she doesn't she has a very interesting um take because she doesn't necessarily hate the mormon faith there's moments where she's thinking very fondly on the mormon faith and that actually makes her, her character more realistic and more interesting because she's clearly doing things that her faith would not would not recommend for her to do. But she's doing that again because the writers gave her a very specific goal and objective. And that looks like having to turn on her faith in order to get those goals and objectives. So really, again, really compelling characters with really compelling backstories, largely because they're from a memoir and probably a lot of them are are true to life that these people were encountered and met um samantha and sato have a really interesting relationship which i just mentioned i think samantha and jake's relationship is a little bit more awkward 
Um, probably it's more awkward because they feel like they should, they feel like they have a shared culture that they can get around, but at the same time, they're doing things to each other that are like not the greatest things to do to, to one another. So their relationship's kind of interesting. I really enjoy the relationship between uh, Emmy and Jake, which is who's Jake's boss. That's a really, really fascinating. Emmy is a great character, I think, and almost more like a nurturing, uh, sort of mothering type of figure for Jake telling him when he's out of line, telling him when, like nurturing him as opposed to uh, someone like Ishida or, or Katagiri who are a little bit harder on Jake and a little bit more like, you need to be what I want you to be. Uh, Emmy is, is almost more like, I see the strengths in you, but I'm trying to nurture those out of you, uh, which I think is really, really good, good and really fascinating. Great take on that. And then Katagiri and Ishida and their relationships with so the detective and the head of one of the, um, of the Chihara crime family that that relationship is really interesting because they have a respect for one another and they understand their each other's role in society and they kind of want to help one another because they feel like helping one another maintains the peace so to speak it's like Katagiri doesn't want the gang wars to get into the civilians and Ashida wants to make sure that he maintains his respect in his territory so the two of them have an understanding of how the world should work in Tokyo and that's a very fascinating relationship because of it. But also, Katagiri keeps Ishida at a distance and doesn't doesn't become his pawn. Whereas Jake starts to become Ishida's pawn, and that is another interesting turn of events. But I really think that um, the show does a fascinating job of explaining to the West what Japanese culture was like in the late '90s and early 2000s, explaining that in a way that the Western audience can take it in, understand it. And then understand how things would work in that world. The performances are also top notch. So I really can't recommend this show enough. Now, granted, you probably have seen it because <laughs> you're listening to my spoiler field part of this. If you haven't, go watch it. Hopefully I haven't spoiled too much. Um, but I highly recommend it. And I think that you will really enjoy it, especially if you like Detective Noir. And don't forget to go check out my video about how detective noir and tokyo vice work and how excellent it is but that is it for today's show join me live on youtube and facebook every wednesday at 10 a.m pacific standard time 1 p.m eastern standard time and then all of the shows will post to the podcast feed later that same day so i'm recording this live but in the next couple hours it will actually be on the podcast feed as well so if you can't sit and watch me live comment on things live then definitely check it out later on the podcast if you have a topic or a question leave me a comment down below or shoot me an email at hi hi at reclamation society.org i'd love to include your questions in a future show and i'll also be recording shorter shows throughout the week so you'll notice on monday i did my review of dr strange and the multiverse of madness so Throughout the rest of the week, I will be recording shorter shows or taking these bigger shows and breaking them up into smaller chunks. So just know you should subscribe because you'll get access to all of that content and not miss out on any of it. There'll be a lot of content coming out, even though I've gone back a little bit. And instead of doing full two, two full big full podcasts per week, I was doing them on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Now I'm only doing them on Wednesday. You will still get more content. It's just that I'm breaking that down into smaller, easier to record and release chunks so that it's not as much 
work setting them up and, and releasing them. Subscribe to the Story Geeks YouTube channel or on your preferred podcast provider. That way you won't miss any episodes or any of the content I'm producing. I'll check, also check out the, uh, the description because I will be doing additional content for the, our Patreon account. And if you're a member of our Patreon account, uh, that's how stories work. Patreon.com slash how stories work. You'll get some extra content over there. And if you're a Patreon supporter, let me know what kind of extra content you would like. Maybe I can answer some additional questions of yours or point you towards storytelling techniques that I think are really effective. Maybe you're, you're a storyteller yourself and you want to know a little bit more how to include that in a story you're working on. Thanks for watching, and I will see you on the next show.